Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, what's going on with you, man? What's going on with you, man? Me? <laughs> if you listened to our last podcast where I was soloing the preamble, you would know what's going on with me. So I should be <laughs> like, testing you right now. I was curious. I was like, I'm always curious when you're, when you're rambling alone, what you talk about. <laughs> All right, what's going on with me? Let's see. Uh, this fucking cottage. So much work putting something on live on Airbnb. I don't know if I'm about doing this again. Really? It's too much work. It's, it's not, um, it's extremely inefficient. It's cottage country and everyone is extremely slow and uh, everything is extremely expensive. It's also a massive fucking house, right? Like five bedrooms, three bathrooms. Like it's a lot of square footage to try and like cover and get ready. I'm finally at a point where I think next week my patio furniture is going to arrive and then that'll be the last piece. So I'm probably going to take pictures and go live like this weekend, like have a kind of a late June, like start date, but so many fucking issues on this one, man. It was, yeah, it's a, it's a lesson. I, I significantly underestimated how much work it was. That's my problem. And what extent, like the, I guess the products, like, I don't know, fork spoons and all of those small things. Is that what you were missing? Yeah. A lot of small shit just to get the Airbnb live. And I think I underestimated, like we basically didn't even really furnish the basement. Cause I'm like, yo, this is like, we're spending a lot of money just furnishing just the upstairs, which is like, yeah. so we've, out of the five bedrooms, we furnished four. Cause the fifth room has to be bunk beds, which is taking forever to come in. So I'm like, fuck it. We'll do that part later. And then now like, I got to like furnish the entire games room. And I'm like, shit, like that's even more money that I got to hemorrhage. Right. So underestimate on the cost side, that was one thing. And then the second thing is just the available help that I could get up North. Right. Like if this was an Airbnb, I think a little bit closer, like it'd be a lot easier to stage. Right. But this is like, I'm taking like truckloads of shit up like one at a time for the last like couple, like couple weeks. Right. So even right now I've got Marco on my team going up there because Best Buy is delivering a TV and they won't deliver it unless someone over the age of 18 is there to like sign mm-hmm. off on it. And like my cleaners are like fucking like $200. So I can't just be like, yo cleaner, can you go and they like sign off on this shit? Right. Cause it's like stupid expensive. So yeah, I mean, we'll see. But, but my wife was asking me like, if, if I thought it was going to be this much work, I was like, fuck no. And she's like, would you do it again? I'm like, I mean, if it's like really lucrative, then okay. yeah. but if it's like running at fucking break even, fuck that, right? So we'll see. How about um, your cleaning products and all of that? And like toiletries, did you buy it in bulk from Costco and put it in a separate room with a lock on it? Yeah, exactly. So it's like a small, not a small, it's like, I guess like a decent sized walk-in closet that we're using for that stuff. And then the cleaners bringing like the actual cleaning stuff. She's like bringing your own stuff and like taking care of all that stuff. But yeah, like toiletries, extra nice. towels, extra forks all that kind of shit is being stored in this closet. So, yeah, I mean, this is the first one, right? So yeah. the first one's always <laughs> going to be the most pain. If this was a smooth experience, that'd be super yeah. odd. Means yeah, you yeah. <laughs> could do any strategy perfectly the first try. Yeah. I guess on my end of things, what I've been up to. So I guess I'll give some updates on the Toronto flip. So closed on it on May 15th. So we're about 15 days in now. feels like it's been much longer for whatever reason. One of the things about these sort of flips is, is that I feel like I have to be involved one because it's close by. It's like a 10 minute drop for me. And two, cause I think that going with nicer finishes and yeah. like having nice design will matter more 
than those cookie cutter entry level flips. So I almost prefer to do these cookie cutter entry level flips because it's easier to systemize, right? Like when you're talking about three, 400 K ARV, like three hours away from Toronto, man, I can trust my contractor to choose whatever finishes and they'll look decent enough. But here I just got to make sure he doesn't choose the wrong finishes. Cause that could really just like have the property stay on days on market for a long time. How long is it going to take you think? How long? I, I'm hoping I'm ho- so I'm on vacation mid June for my sister's wedding. So I'm hoping before that and we can list, but you never know with these things. Uh, right now, the progress is going pretty well. So I've learned from my last flip to plan in advance. So I ordered all the kitchen shit before closing. You know, I got them in there to take the measurements and the kitchen people said they're going to take four to six weeks. So that aligns perfectly waterproofing all of that. I did everything beforehand and scheduled them first week up so like we did waterproofing sump pump and all of that already demo like as soon as closing day arrived we, we just yeah. started hit the ground running but i will say that uh i don't know i'll, I'll disclose it on a high level the neighbor reported us to the city uh, <laughs> it's because we're doing some demo on a wall and uh the wall is the party wall it's a semi-detached so it's connecting to the neighbor the party wall and we're just knocking off tiles there is making a lot of noise these yeah. houses are 1800s you know so then they got upset i left them a little note in their mailbox saying hey i'm gonna be your neighbor soon i may move in here That's with good. my fiance da, 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 da. Yeah. you know hope we can keep this relationship going here's my phone number and then they didn't bother calling me they gave my phone number to the city <laughs> And the city inspector didn't hide it. He's like, yeah, we got a call and they gave us your phone number. I'm like, oh, who the fuck else has my phone number? Right? I literally just gave it. I was like, okay, whatever. But yeah, fortunately, no permits are needed. I told the city inspector, scope of work, all of that, so on and so forth. So they're going to be coming in for an inspection. And then, yeah, we can hopefully close this complaint on and continue moving forward. But uh yeah, fortunately, <laughs> you know, when you're doing these semi-detached houses, like always get permits if you're obvious with any houses, like really you should be getting permits. But especially with semi-detached, just count on someone snitching on you, especially you have no relationship with them. You guys are doing like a pretty quick reno though on it, right? Like that's essentially a one month reno. Yeah, yeah. But there's like four to five dudes working on it. <laughs> um, and and keep in mind, right? Like if this rental could go a lot longer, if materials and all of that were not ordered in time, flooring, appliances, all of that already ordered. It's not in my place yet because either I'm waiting for it to come in or because I want the flooring and stuff to go in before I have it shipped over. So like I was just on the money with this one more so than, than usual with the other flips, especially also because I mean, it's a million dollar product. I'm kind of stressed out <laughs> yeah that's good man i think that you've got decent profit margin i think right like overall the market's still doing pretty well and in toronto you're not really going to find jack shit that's renovated under a million dollars so that's the thing right like the market is slowing down a little bit there's more supply hitting but the supply i'm monitoring there's very few that are like truly turnkey there are a decent amount they're in good condition but they're still asking for 1.1 1.2 1.3 1.4 1.5 plus right? So I'm hoping with a newly renovated product, I could at least get 1.1, right? That I would be okay with that. I'd be content. That's a good profit margin. I'm pretty sure. No, 1.1 isn't the craziest profit margin. That's like 60,000, 50 to 60,000. Didn't you buy this for eight something? Yeah, but double land transfer tax, all of that, right? And keep in mind, my my lending costs are super cheap. My lending cost is 3.2% interest. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> so can you imagine going private with this thing? It's just like the transaction costs are so expensive. Realtor fees alone are going to be like 50 to 60 grand. Yeah. yeah so before I do any rentals, I'm out 80 grand. So yeah, I mean, that's a learning lesson as well in Toronto. It's not a learning lesson. I knew what I was getting myself into, but uh, I'm banking on more than 1.1 million sale price. And I would be very upset if the sale price was below 1.1. I would <laughs> want to know where I went wrong. Anyways, let's jump into today's podcast. We have Deji, the founder of Deals Estate, which is the first passive wholesaling company in Canada. Where if you guys don't know what that is, you'll just have to tune into the podcast. But Deji has entrepreneurship in his blood. Back home in Nigeria, he founded up a company with a few of his friends. And then he moved into Canada for a better life for himself and his family. And he was introduced into real estate. And over the short two years where he's been involved in the real estate industry, he's made a huge splash. He's grown a decent sized wholesaling company and he's doing so many unique things that not many other wholesalers are doing because, again, of his entrepreneurial blood. You guys are going to really enjoy this episode. Mayu and I got a lot of golden nuggets from it and new perspectives that we otherwise would not have had without having this conversation with him. And I'm hoping you guys can get the same sort of value in return. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, comment, and let's jump right into it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Deji from Deals Estate. How's it going, my man? Going very well, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Deji, it's awesome. I really hyped you up. Oh, man. <laughs> You're uh, quite the entrepreneur. So for everyone and myself included, why don't you give us uh, a quick background on your journey and who you are? No, no, this one's not going to be quick. Let's give him some time with this. Yeah, one. Okay, oh, go. Go. He has a great story. You know, so now I feel like I have to over deliver. But um, so I usually start off by sharing my experience when I came into Canada. You know, even before I came into Canada, you know, I had, I would say, doubled in entrepreneurship. Before I came into the country, a lot of my background has been in tech. So I spent about, I'll say, eight to nine years in tech. I had worked across different corporates and worked for startups. But I think it was in 2018, I would say, that I met a co-founder of mine and we decided to launch a startup. But that was in Nigeria. And it was like a ride-hailing startup. So when you think of Uber, but for motorcycles. So that's what we launched in Nigeria. And it was essentially to solve the traffic problem that we had in Lagos. When you think about a city that's the size of Toronto, or you have about 21 million people living there. So you could imagine the density of people in that area. The transportation models there are usually vehicles, but there's also like the two wheelers. That was the vehicle that we used to build the right hailing startup. But in 2019, I decided to come to Canada. And that was because my wife and I just had a baby. And I thought it was best for us to move into like a different country where we could definitely start a new life. So I came into the country towards the end of 2019, right before COVID. What a time, man. Eh? Yeah. Man. <laughs> I came in, I would say November. And then COVID was obviously beginning of, of, of 2020. Interestingly, I'd actually left my wife and my daughter in Nigeria. So my daughter was six months. So it was a bittersweet moment, you know, to leave at that time. But it was obviously to build the future that we envisioned for ourselves. So I came into the country alone. They were both in Nigeria. And then COVID happened. So I was alone, locked up indoors. And for a few months, you know, I would say I spent a considerable amount of time watching Netflix. It got to a time that um, I would spend like 30 minutes scrolling through the catalog of the movies just to find the ones I haven't watched. Uh, so after a while, I thought, you know, I can't keep doing this. So 
I started to figure out what I wanted to do. Cause again, I just came into the country. I didn't know anyone. So I thought, okay, what do people in this country or in the West, what do they do for money? Like, what do the millionaires do? What do the billionaires do? And a lot of the research that I did took me to real estate. So I noticed that a lot of these people had some exposure to real estate. So I thought, you know what? I have a background in tech. I co-founded the startup. But everything about startup is active, active, active. So I thought, you know what? This would be an interesting industry and skill to learn. So I said, I want to learn how to play in the real estate space. I just want to understand how this works. So that took me on the journey that brought me to where I am today. You know, I started looking for different communities. And that's essentially how my journey started. I hope that gives you some context. Yeah. So you essentially came with really like no network here, or maybe you had a small network of like friends and family, probably from like back home, right? That I kind of migrated here. But you came in with really no background, no context of Canadian real estate, no understanding of big, small cities and sketchy areas and good areas and bad areas and stuff like that. How did you get into wholesaling? Because there are still people that are born and raised in Canada that have never heard of wholesaling, right? So you come in and get into wholesaling. (laughs) Okay, so a bit of context, right? Um, One thing that I didn't mention is I relate very well with the concept of mentorship. So if I want to understand how something is done, I would usually look for people who are doing it already. So as part of the research that I mentioned, I just went to Google, right? And just started searching. What do people do? So when I came across real estate, how do you make money? How do you do this? And I noticed that people were doing wholesaling. So I started to research as well. How do you do wholesaling? So it was when I started asking people, someone then referred me to some mentors in Cashflow Tribe. And that was the first community that I came across. So it was because of the research I was doing, someone did an introduction to someone there. And then I spoke with them. That was the first community that I came in contact with. And then just listening to all the calls, joining all the calls, all the meetups, that was my first introduction into real estate. And then because at the time, the mentors there were primarily doing wholesaling. And also when I identified my why, because my family was coming to join me, it was really critical for me to build up some cash in anticipation for when they came. So wholesaling seemed to be the right strategy at the time to get started. So that's essentially how I started. And so you left like a startup world. Why not come here and just kind of keep going down that route? Because keep in mind, you started this company with someone else and you've left it all behind. And it sounds like it was like decently successful, right? Like it's almost just to paint the picture to the audience, everything that you've given up to come over. Yeah. So it was definitely me resetting my life. But again, right. When you think about the fact that like, if you build skill sets, you're able to replicate those skill sets, right? So you have people that have built multiple companies, right? So if you build one, you are able to build multiple. So I co-founded this startup with a co-founder. So answer your question, Mayu, when I came into the country, it was a question that I asked myself because for the first couple of months, before I came in November, I'd actually come earlier in the year, you know, to meet some of my contacts in the tech space. But because my family was also coming, there's also immigration processes that we needed to go through. So there was the decision that I took with respect to the security of having a job at the time to be able to get them here. So again, that was the decision that was taken at the time because I found real estate was actually very, very interesting industry to go into. And so did you like raise capital for that startup? And how does that look? Because we don't usually have too many guests. Like a lot of us come on here as real estate is our entrepreneurship. It's not a crazy risky business, right? Versus like startup is like, that's like truly starting up a business, right? 
Yeah. And I've talked to other people that have businesses and they're like, yeah, the shit you guys are doing in real estate, like seems pretty safe, like seems solid. Like we just buy shit and <laughs> really like have like crazy numbers and stuff like that. But like, so I'm just curious on that side, what kind of skills we're transferring over. I'd imagine raising capital. If you raise capital, it's probably yeah. pretty transferable, but I'm just curious, like, how'd you go about that for your first startup there? So there are a few transferable skills and I'll try to tie it to real estate. So a bit of context again, before the startup, I had done an MBA program. So I started off my career, as I mentioned, in financial services. I worked for a bank in the tech department for about three plus years. I resigned to do an MBA program. I did that across Spain and the US. So after that MBA program, I worked for a startup in Nigeria for about a year. So the combination of those skill sets, you know, doing an MBA program and also working for a startup gave me the, I would say, if I use real estate terminology, the operator skills, like what you would find in an active partner. So my co-founder was what you would call a money partner. Right. So he brought the capital because he had experience in investing in other startups. So the startup that we co-founded, he had invested in a similar startup outside of Nigeria. So he was essentially replicating that same model in Nigeria. The country dynamics were very similar, right? There was a lot of traffic, population density. Both countries had like motorcycles as primary modes of transport. So he came with the money. I was the co-founder as the CEO. I was the active partner. And then we had a couple of of other co-founders who are local as well. So that was the structure. With respect to fundraising, I think in total, we did about maybe $5.5, 5, $6 million. So the first sets of fundraisers were like seed raises, but the fire left it is series A of 5.3. So it's not very different from- Sorry, What valuation was that, that five or six mil raised at to give contact? So I wouldn't be able to share because it was a private company. Okay. But um, the skill sets are not very different because you're essentially- speaking with investors and sharing, this is what the company is doing. Very similar to real estate, you essentially share your metrics and then where the company is going, right? And, you know, the opportunity, what you want to do with the funds and essentially how they're going to get that return. So not so different. So do you still have equity there? No, no. <laughs> I'll just do my best on that. It's really valuable to me, but uh, whatever. Uh, so when you leave that and you come here and you, you know, kind of jumping ahead into today's or not today's world, but 2020 getting into real estate. I think part of it and our last guest was actually just talking about something very similar, like the power of mentorship and all that is great. And I think me and Austin also have benefited greatly from mentorship and coaching and that kind of stuff too. But I think there's two big issues with it. One is the size of the checks that you often have to cut the industry that we're in, right? It's not like $500 or even $300 or something like that. There's like 10 X of that. And then the second is there's a lot of people that expect just by joining, they will get results. And I don't think that like one in 10 people, I would say actually put in the required amount of work to drive the results that you can maximally like achieve from it. Right. So yeah. I guess that program that we were talking about earlier wasn't necessarily cheap. Yeah. So I'm just curious how you kind of got into it. Did you already do a couple of deals before you got into it kind of learning on your own or just how did that work? So that's actually a very interesting question. So my first deal was, Sometime in 2021, I had done the first deal before joining the mentorship program. Before then, so they had, I would say, a monthly program, which was not very expensive. I think it was about 60 bucks a month. So that I paid for, right? And I was going through all the processes, going through the calls, you know, all the meetups. So that was the best I could get at the time. I was aware of the mentorship program at that time, but it was pretty expensive. But middle of 2021, I just came back into the country and I decided, you know what, I wanted to take this very seriously. So I put about 3,500 on my credit card 
and said I was going to do a flyer campaign. Again, I had spent months watching all these people doing stuff and I thought, well, I might as well just take the risk. I found it on my credit card and did a campaign. I was living in Kitchener. I did a campaign around the KWC area. Um, <laughs> I only got four calls, which was a bit disheartening. But as God would have it, one of those four calls was a promising lead, which I followed up like my life depended on you. Like every single day, I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? I would take a bus from Kitchener to Cambridge, you know, to go see him like almost every single day. He, he eventually sold to me. It was a 20K fee. And that was when I was like, okay, so this is possible, right? Then I didn't know that you get paid on closing. I thought you get paid on assignments. So in a bit to be very customer savvy, I was like, hey man, close whenever you want, as long as you sell to me, like just close whenever you want. So the closing was two months away. I swear to God, I didn't know that I was going to wait for two months to get paid. So the credit card bills came due. Like everything came due, like I hadn't gotten paid. So I was like, oh my God. That was my first realization that, okay, I think I need mentorship because little mistakes like this, like I expected something, but I just didn't know. So I said, you know what? I did this once, so it's possible. I think I need to go for mentorship, learn as much as I can so that I don't make this kind of mistakes anymore. So that was when I decided to join the accelerator program. At that time, I'd only done that one deal. So while I was in the program, again, it was expensive. I took out a line of credits to join the program. So I said, you know what, how do I pay this off, right? How do I keep doing this deal? So I decided to do deals from the MLS. That was my way of trying to learn the skills without actually putting more money out of pocket while the first deal closed. So before the first deal closed, I think I did two deals off the MLS. So I was like, oh man, like this seems like something that I, I could actually do. So that's how I, I sort of structured everything. And then when the first deal closed, I was like, okay, life could be good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love it. I love it. So, you pretty much went balls to the wall and invested even money that you didn't have to make this thing work. And clearly, I will say that I mean, if you're making that bus ride back and forth from Kitchener to Cambridge, obviously, no one else, I can't think of any other wholesaler who would commit to that sort of grind. So, kudos on you. Okay, so let's fast forward a bit because now you own Deals the State, which is an actual wholesaling business before yeah. you're doing it sort of independently. So you do a couple of deals here and there, some of it on the MLS. I guess just to preface, guys, back then, with the market being hot, it was easier to wholesale MLS deals. Now, obviously, you probably yeah. know <laughs> ain't nobody bought it. <laughs> I just tried to throw something. I actually recently tried and then. Everyone's like, hey, Austin, did you know this is on the MLS? <laughs> yes, I, I know. I got it within the first hour under contract. But yes. <laughs> um, so now, fast forward, you do a couple of deals. And when did you start to realize this is an actual business? And what were sort of the steps you took as you were starting to put this business together? Keeping in mind, you do have limited capital still throughout all of this. Yeah. So I would say while I was going through the mentorship program, it was a case of, could I actually build this as a business? That was when the thought started coming and that was when I registered the corporation. So I thought, you know what? After doing these first three deals, that's proof of concept already. I don't need to do it the fourth time to know that it can be done. So I registered the business right after the third deal. And then from then on, you know, I started to treat it as a business. Like I had most of my fixed cost employees have been overseas. So I hire VAs. I brought up my first VA in 2021. That was when I really started to treat it as a business. What did you do differently when you started to treat it as a business? Because like hiring someone 
I get that, right? But how do you put fuel on the fire? Was it just kind of organic growth? And then I guess another related question to that is the wholesaling market, because this would be 2021 that we're talking about, right? Or 2022, 2021, right? So what's the end of 2021, like okay. um, Q3, Q4. And I feel like I spoke with a couple of people who just said the amount of flyers going out and the cost of acquisition per deal was getting really expensive, right? So it was obviously still really good if you have the skills and you have the mail list and stuff like that. But how did you go about kind of combating that, those challenges? So I would say Q3, Q4, that was when I tested out a lot of things. Like I had done a, a few deals, three, two of them less and just one with flyer campaign. At that time, I wanted to just find out if that was sustainable, right? So I had the VA and then I just had her do things like going on Kijiji, right? I was already paying for her salary. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to keep costs low. So I had a few flyer campaigns go out. I had a check on Kijiji. So that was when I started exploring the different acquisition channels. Okay, you do this, you do this every day. And then I start, I start to track. Thankfully, before the end of the year, she got a deal off Kijiji for me that we were able to do like a quick um, flip on. That was really like how I sort of started to think through the business, you know, just ensuring that I had those things in place. So you started flipping as well in 2021? So it's like a light flip, right? So hotel. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a hotel because we actually did a bit of work. I think we spent okay. like maybe 10, 15 K. So, you know, that's something it's a light flip. It wasn't extensive. So that was in Windsor. That was in Windsor. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. How'd you go about that? Just kind of knowing your story now a little bit more. It sounds like you didn't have too much capital. You know, flips require like wholesaling is one thing, right? Yeah. Um, you could get away with putting a small flyer campaign on a credit card. Yeah. Probably not putting that flip on a credit card, right? So <laughs> how'd you go about that? So it's power of partnerships, right? So I met someone in my mentorship group who lives in Windsor and, mm-hmm. you know, also does wholesaling, does a bit of flipping. And then when my VA found the deal of Windsor, I asked someone in Windsor who was a realtor. I said, Hey, you know, like we got this deal. And he was like, Oh, it's a fantastic deal. It's in a good area. I thought about wholesaling it actually, but a few people said, a few people in Windsor said, Oh, wow, this is a fantastic location. Fantastic deal. Why don't you not wholesale it? And I'm like, ah, so I said, you know what? Maybe I wouldn't. So I connected with my partner in Windsor and I said, Hey man, like what do you think about this deal? And it's like, it's, it's a fantastic deal. It's a good location. And we basically partnered. So you know, he brought some of the capital and then, you know, we went to Carrots, well, Finley and the Carrots, you know, for the private funds. So that's how we closed on that. And it was a light flip. So it's not like the, the, the rentals were super extensive. Yeah. And then yeah. we sold it in, I would say it was probably like a week on the market. It was like maybe four week turnaround. It sucks for the buyers. They said, why don't you take it down? Cause you ended up taking it down. <laughs> <laughs> But then going into 2022, and I'd be curious on this, obviously as a market turned, how did you see that impact your business? What did you kind of change? How did you restructure? How did you continue? Uh, So that's actually a very interesting one because going into 2022, you know, I had tried a few things, some worked, some didn't work. So in thinking through 2022, I, I had actually identified, this was probably my business mindset, you know, my business wheels turning or my startup wheels turning. I tried to identify the gaps in the market that I saw. And I noticed that with all the things I was testing, I was doing a lot of things, right? So there were some campaigns that I put down my money. There were some campaigns that you know, someone else put down money, but I noticed that I was doing just about everything. And I asked myself, like, there's people that probably just want to fund a campaign and they don't want to deal with 
all the hassles of what comes with wholesaling. Everyone wants to do wholesaling. Like at the time, everyone was like, I want to do wholesaling, but they never really wanted to do what wholesaling is, you know, which mm. is lack of a better word, like the dirty work. But they just loved the glam of, oh, I, I made a 20K fee. So I said, you know what? Why don't you do wholesaling? Or you never have to actually do the heavy lifting. We will do the heavy lifting. So bringing the JV partnership structure into this, you be the passive partner, we'll be the active partner. So that was the thinking. So I thought, you know what? Let me test this out. What I did at the time was I went on the Cash Your Tribe podcast and said, hey, I'm launching this. Um, if you're interested in being a passive partner for wholesale deals, let me know, reach out. So it was just a way to test demand. And a lot of people started to reach out. So I said, you know what? During the Christmas period, I then put together like a PowerPoint deck, did a pitch, and then just started to blast it out. Like, hey guys, you know, we're launching a passive wholesaling business. And between December and I would say February, we had quite a number of interested partners. I think it also helped that the market was at its peak. So there was mm -hmm. a lot of interest in wholesaling at the time. I know we onboarded about 20 something partners. So we were operating about 20 something cities. Interestingly enough, the market turned just when we started. So like most of 2022, we were basically trying to manage expectations, you know, because the expectations that we started off when the market was in its highest um, stage and where the market ended up in 2020 was very different. So people's expectations of wholesaling obviously changed. And then even my expectation also changed because again, I, I just came into the country. I just started wholesaling. My mentors as well were doing wholesaling, but they were doing it at the head of the market. So when the market started to turn, that, that was when reality started to set in that, okay, <laughs> you know, this is, is the reality of things in a down market. So it's really been interesting trying to really navigate how that has changed the business. So now it's, it's really just taking the lessons from 2022 and putting that in place now as we move forward. So one thing about you as an entrepreneur that I've noticed after a couple of interactions is, is that you're not afraid to try new things and think outside the box. And I think you would agree that you're doing some unconventional things. I'm not sure how much you want to share that other wholesalers may have not thought through or even me, like I've thought through it, but I decided against it and I see you do it. And it's like, and you've been doing well at it. I'm like, oh, like interesting, right? you're not afraid to sort of just take those chances and to pivot. And I think that's really what makes a successful entrepreneur. Now you're doing a couple of cool things now. So one thing that all wholesalers are, are facing trouble in is, is disposition side of things, right? Yeah. Investors are, have dried up. Some of them are coming back really good deals. They, they enter some deals move. A lot of deals don't, right? Yeah. And you found an interesting way to kind of combat that because we're in this odd predicament where the market's picking up on the MLS via home buyers, but yeah. wholesalers don't have access to that buyers list. We have yeah. access to investors, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing some unique stuff. So why don't you share, if you're open to it, share some yeah. of the things yeah. you've been doing that have been pretty successful for you and what your thought process was to lead you towards making that decision. Thanks, man. So you know, let me qualify you know, what you mean by successful. Like, as I mentioned to you, it's something that we're testing and Whenever I see something happen once, you know, then I believe it's something that if I can do it the second or third time, it's probably something that could scale or it's, it's a process that I could essentially do. So the first couple of months of 2023, we actually took a step back. And that was because we wanted to understand like what's the best way to move forward. And because we're essentially a service business, when our partners were like, are we doing any new campaigns? 
I felt it was prudent and wise to really understand the market, understand what the best approach for acquisition going forward would be so that I'm able to speak with confidence and say, hey, you know, if you want to get deals, it's probably not the best to do it this way. So we spent a couple of weeks, months at the beginning of the year to do a lot of that research, you know, while we're also building our social media. But one thing that we've spoken about is the fact that a lot of wholesalers view realtors as like their opponents, like we are all in a different market. But the truth is, I collaborate very well with realtors. In 2022, a lot of our deals, we sold them to realtors and their clients. So, you know, I thought if we are able to get realtors to bring us deals, that would be something that could essentially work. So that's on the acquisition side. On the disposition side, when we're trying to reach out to realtors, like the way we're reaching out to them was via email. And, you know, I think you and I spoke about it. Um, We were having challenges with just the response rates. But, you know, we started to do SMS, which had higher open rates just as a channel. And we started to get more feedback that way. So I had my VA reach out, well, not reach out, but build a list of about 4,000 realtors in certain markets. So I have that list. And then I started to aggressively engage those realtors. Now, it's a numbers game, right? So maybe out of 4,000, maybe 2,000 would say, get the hell out, don't message me anymore. Maybe 1,000 wouldn't respond. But you have a few that would respond. And then because it's a numbers game, you just need one or two or three people to tell you, okay, you know, I'm interested. The last deal we assigned, we actually got a realtor to bring the deal and we got a realtor to buy the deal. So we didn't have to do any marketing. We didn't have to sell via our buyers list. So that happened once and we're like, maybe we could do it again. I think I shared with you the message that I sent the second time. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but we got two triplexes on the contract as well again. So, and that was from that channel. So. For me, I don't have any issues sharing because again, I'm here because people shared what worked with me. I'm more than happy to do the same as well. And I will say it's not an easy stream to get leads or to dispo with that, right? As much as we simplify it, it is absolute hell. You know, like I've done similar thing on the dispo side just recently as we were chatting offline. And it's just like a bunch of realtors calling you, messaging, who are you? What do you want? And then they just oh, you have to be okay <laughs> with that, right? That it's just going to be hell for the first 24 hours of just constantly explaining yourself, people complaining. You might get a couple of slap on the wrist, so on and so forth. And it may eventually lead to nothing. So this one, like the one that I've tried it for, didn't lead to anything. So like it, it just feels like another waste of time. But it is part of being an entrepreneur, just testing things. Am I going to quit doing it? Probably not, because I saw that. I mean, you've had proof of concept that it worked. So I'm yeah. going to do it. It took me about a So I'm sorry for cutting short. So to your point, it actually took me about a month of consistently messaging and getting no's. And even yesterday, like I sent another message and like I go through the logs and I see, don't message me again, stop. And whenever I get those messages, the first thing I do is I remove their numbers from the list. So it's like I send to a thousand people, I get like 900 no's, I remove 900 numbers, now I have 100. As long as I have 100 people that said yes, that's really all that matters. So the 900 no's for me means nothing. It just means they don't want to do business with me and that's fine. So 100 people want to do business with me, whether I had to go through a thousand people to get to those 100 or, or 1 million people, I got to the 100. And it's that hundred that I'm going to move forward with. So that's how I view it. So it's, it's just a, like a hurdle to get to the goal. That's really interesting. So the realtor acquisition model is good. And so the passive wholesaling model, is that something that you're still doing as well or no? We are still doing that. Given the current market situation, we are also reviewing like the audience that we target. So 
the investors that we're working with at the start of 2022, obviously will be different from the investors that we are working with now because we had a bunch. Avatar in 2022 would just be anyone who wants to make money via wholesaling. The market was at its peak. Anyone that just has money, come on board and make money via wholesaling. Unfortunately, you know, the market turned. But now, whenever we have those conversations, I usually like to set expectations because if maybe you reached out because you saw that we did a 20K deal, I would like to set expectations and say, hey, you know what? It's possible that this deal you saw, we did the campaign six months ago. Are you okay with that? You know, are you fine with that? And then it always helps when the partner is also an active investor because what we found is when you get deals, and when I started, I always just wanted to wholesale, wholesale, wholesale. But I'm starting to train myself to take a step back, see a deal, identify what the best exit is, and then take the best exit. So if I have a partner who wants to wholesale, that's fine. But when we get a deal and then we say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't wholesale, maybe we should take this down. And the person is like, no, let's wholesale. I'm like, that's not the best exit. So there's a few criteria that we're looking to basically put in place now so that we are basically aligned, right? So whenever we get deals, we look at the best exits. What's going to make us the most money? What aligns with our goals? If it's to wholesale, we wholesale. If it's to wholesale, we wholesale. If it's to flip, we flip. If one, one of the partners wants to take the deal on, they take the deal on. And then there's consistency. That's another thing that tripped us up in 2022. The fact that we were not necessarily consistent. So we found a campaign in January and then we wait until like June to fund the next campaign. What we found is the lack of consistency wasn't really the best. If we had set out a budget in place and to consistently keep funding campaigns, that also provides confidence to the sellers. Like if they see that your flyers are coming in constantly, then they know that when they call you, they are speaking to an actual business versus I see your flyers today and then I don't see it again for six months. So there's a lot of things that we've learned that we're looking to take into account going forward. So if someone is just looking to fund a campaign once and that's the expectation, we would just tell them, hey, you could try it, but it's probably not the best because if you don't get a deal from that campaign, you would feel like it wasn't a success. Now you're exposing yourself to timing risk. You're basically mm-hmm. expecting that the time at which you sent that flyer, the seller wanted to sell their house at that exact time. And that's not always the case, right? By the time the seller is ready to sell, if it's not your flyer that they see, you lose the deal. My first deal, I actually took the deal from someone else. Another wholesaler had gone there, done the walkthrough, didn't follow up. My flyer came through. He called me as well. And then I went. And because it was my first deal, I was like, there's no way I'm losing this. So every single day I was on the guy. So I didn't let anybody else hijack the deal from me at that point in time. If my flyers didn't come at that time, when the seller was about to make a decision to sell, I probably would have lost the deal as well. So there's a lot of timing risk that people would face if they expect that it is when they send the flyer that they expect the seller to sell at that same time and close literally the next month and then they will make their wholesale deal a month after the flyer campaign. So there's a lot of moving parts that just make that probability very low. So it's, it's, it's usually right. good to set that expectation. So you're assigning cities on the kind of like a reoccurring partnership, like you passive partner put a couple thousand every couple months or something like that. And we will keep sending out flyers to the city. So how it started was there was some sort of exclusivity in place where, for example, if you, Mayu, were interested in wholesaling in Windsor, mm-hmm. we would assign Windsor to you. So we wouldn't do any campaigns with anyone else in Windsor just because you are sending flyers to Windsor. 
That has pros and cons. Pros would be that we aren't, there isn't conflict of interest essentially. So all the flowers that you're sending, any money that you're investing, there isn't conflict of interest, at least from our end. Of course, other wholesalers would send flyers, but we are sure that from our end, there's no conflict of interest. Right. The downside for that is if you decide you aren't necessarily looking to do wholesaling anymore, you know, then we have to find someone to replace you. And mm-hmm. um, that was one of the issues that we faced. When the market was coming down, expectedly, we had some people that were like, they wanted to pause, which was fair because, you know, the market was quite uncertain. And it just didn't make sense to keep like right. sending flyers when the market was coming down and the seller expectation wasn't coming down as fast as the prices were coming down. So when you have that type of situation where you know people decide to pause and then you don't have someone to replace them, then that was one of the challenges that we faced as well in 2022. I wanted to talk about this year almost. So yeah. 2022 has been a challenge for a lot of wholesalers and every wholesaler had to pivot. Some people started a real estate brokerage. Other people started like a maintenance or added construction to the arm. Other people started focusing on fixing and flipping. I don't know many wholesalers that just double down solely on wholesaling without figuring out another more reliable income stream, right? Okay. Fast forward to 2023, a lot of learning lessons that you've had. What has changed for you this year? What are you planning on doing this year? I know you've got to keep some things to yourself, obviously. But just on a high level, is there anything that you're going to be doing different this year? So mine is pretty clear. Like, I can't hide it. Like, before this year, I would say maybe no one ever saw my face on social media. I was on social media, but like, I wasn't showing my face. You know, I wasn't doing much. I was posting some stuff, but, you know, I wasn't doing that much on social media. But it's changed this year, right? And it's changed aggressively. And I'll give some context. So. You are right. Like a lot of people have pivoted. A lot of wholesalers, you know, have done like backward integrations or vertical integrations. They've started construction companies, you know, they've started other types of companies. For us, we're taking a different approach. And the way I view it is if you ask yourself what people like Kylie Jenner, um, like popular celebrities that have built businesses have in common, one thing is they were able to weaponize the power of attention, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm not a contractor. I probably don't have enough contractor relationships to start a comparison company. But I thought, you know what? If I'm able to monetize and, well, not monetize, but if I'm able to build attention long-term, I can use that, you know, and extend that into different things. So for me, what I've decided to do is to invest in social media, to invest in content. And it's quite deliberate, right? In the next couple of years in terms of attention, I would be the wholesaler that has the most attention. That's the goal, right? With that attention, it's easier to do different things. It's easier to do deals. It's easier to connect with people. It's easier to get into rooms. A lot of things that you would typically have to leverage your skill to do, you can use attention to do it easier, right? So for me, that's what we're focusing on. So we started the wholesaling podcast, which I believe was the first in Canada. And, you know, we're trying to provide value to the community that way. In reaching out to realtors as well, it's also deliberate because if you have relationships with realtors across the country, that's powerful as well. So a lot of things that we're doing might seem like we're not monetizing right now, but it's in a bid to build a brand and build a network that drives attention to, to us. And then we can then use that attention to basically 
reach our goals. <laughs> what does Grant Cardone say? Attention is the new currency, right? <laughs> That's true. Let me just say it's a great name, by the way. Deals to say. I, I don't know who came up with it. I think it's a great marketing name. So let me ask you a little bit about social media, okay? Because this is uh, more so from my own perspective and curiosity, yeah. what you want to call it. Does it seem like it's a little bit repetitive on social media? And Austin, I'd love to hear your opinion on this too. Do you feel like everyone's kind of doing the same shit? Like, I don't know. <laughs> One thing I found is like when I connect with people, like when I, I go on social media and I see people consistently, I feel like there's some sort of connection. I feel connected to them in some way. Whatever they say seems to make sense, right? I mean, that's the power of social media. So I don't know if being repetitive works or doesn't work. For me, mine is a bit repetitive. There's some structure to it. So if someone who is a social media manager looks at page, they would see the structure there. Like I have a VA and I have a calendar and I don't do much, but everything on my social media is my VA that does that. But everything is structured. Like sometimes I don't even know what gets posted, but I know what category the post falls under per day. Mine is super repetitive, but we have built the calendar in a way where we are going to add value. So before we even started posting, we knew that, okay, there's seven days in a week, three days out of seven, it's going to be educational posts. Two days out of seven is going to be this post. One day out of seven is going to be memes. And then it was structured in a way where it would create value. But once we made that decision going forward, it has to be repetitive. If not, there wouldn't be consistency. No, interesting. Um, I think Danielle Unsworth, I think did a pretty good presentation once I saw basically talking about the same thing, like the three buckets and like kind of having these three different kinds of things. One is like more personable. One is what is my actual ask on social media? And then uh, one could be like more education or something like that. And yeah, I guess I'm just trying to see what is the next, I think me and Austin have been doing it for so long. Okay. So, so we started with, I started with blog posts and then it was graphics and then it was before and afters. And then it was video reels of before and afters. And then it was these sit down and present on educational topics. Right. Yeah. And everything is great. I'm just constantly looking for like, what is next and what can I do differently? Right. To kind of just keep changing it up, but we'll see. I think sometimes it's just having people like you with your content, which I think you've done a good job in that and having authenticity, right? Like I think people can kind of read that intention the content that we're a lot of us are putting out, like we're not selling anything behind it, right? We're not, yeah. we don't really have an ass per se. I mean, I, sure, I guess, but it's just like leading, leading with the value first, right? And yeah. I mean, we're not, again, like the entire thing with social media is continue to broaden your audience. So yes, you may bore a couple people or maybe half the people on your list, but you're continuing to grow your followers, right? Because you just want more <laughs> lead sources or whatever the case is, you're growing your influence. So I'm not as consistent as I once was. I do see the value in it, but I would just definitely chalk that up to being a little bit lazy. The way I look at it is I've had two social media VAs. So the first one I had, fantastic. She left because she needed to have a baby. When she left for six months, I didn't replace her. The last post. So if you check my timeline, there would be like a six month gap. The last post was the last post that she made. As soon as she left, I didn't make one post till I had the next guy six months later. I am bad at social media. I am horrible. If my social media guy should leave today, guarantee the next day, nothing is getting posted. (laughs) So because I know that's not where my strength is, 
I had the VA, we spent a few days going through the strategy, the types of posts, you know, how to post, when to post, what dates, like what time to post, the categories. We did that competitive analysis, you know, like I look up to you guys and also like what you guys are doing. So like I have a sheet of like all the wholesalers and like all their, their follow accounts. So we took all that into account and then we put the calendar. And now he has the calendar every day. So he knows that every single day, this is what to post. So all I do is I just know what type of content I need to give to him. And then he just like does all the editing and sends out. So the two major things that I've done to avoid putting myself in the position where I would have to do content is two things. One is the podcast. So it was deliberate because with the podcast, you have one hour of recording and then you could basically chop that up into like multiple social media pieces that gives you content for like two weeks or three weeks or a month. So the way we structure it now is we do two episodes per month. So those two episodes will provide like 60, 70% of the content for that month. And then every quarter I would record the videos. So I wear the same thing every day, also deliberate. So I just do like a two hour recording of like 30, 40, 50 different content pieces. I just upload them into a drive and give it to him. So he just takes all those content pieces and puts them in the respective date. So if I do a content piece about educational, he's going to slot it into the next educational spot on the calendar. So I might have done 50 videos in March, but I noticed that in May, it gets posted. I'm like, oh, okay. I remember I did this video. I never have to do anything. I just did that recording. I think it was a two-hour recording I did maybe a month and a half ago, or about 40 or 50 content pieces. And then I know that it's been scheduled for the next three to four months. So it just gets posted when, when the day comes. It's good. I think everyone's got their own journey to the social media. And I think we all have help, right? Yeah. Because otherwise we wouldn't be able to have our own <laughs> businesses and try and do everything. And then when we do, do try to do it ourselves, nothing gets done, right? So it's, it's kind of <laughs> all, all of us get to the same moment of realization at some point. So I think that's great. Deshi, so at this point in the episode, we talked about a lot of things from your, your startup journey to coming here, getting started in kind of the wholesaling world, how the wholesaling business has like, you've almost seen like three different life cycles with 2021, 2022, and now 2023, two-year business, right? So that's pretty cool. Um, and then obviously talking about social media, which I didn't really expect to talk about as much as we did, but that was <laughs> well. Um, so for someone new looking to get into real estate, kind of similar to how you were back in 2021, looking at the market today, looking at it as a business, what kind of advice would you have to share with share with someone like that, or even someone that's interested in entrepreneurship, because you have quite the breadth of experience there. What kind of advice do you have to share with them? The first thing I would say is conviction, right? Because if the expectation is that it's going to be easy, that's the first lie. It's definitely not going to be easy. And mm -hmm. what's going to keep you through the cycles is, is the fact that you're convicted about that thing. So there's a multiple times that I thought I should stop wholesaling or I shouldn't wholesale. But Again, like there's a reason why I'm doing this. There's a reason why I'm deciding to build a brand around this. There's a reason why, like I said, the podcast. So conviction in what you want to do is key. A lot of people say, know your why. It's, it's very similar. That'll be the first thing. And once that's in place, then I think in terms of expectations, just really understand what it takes. Like from my standpoint, I also didn't know what it took to run a wholesaling business. I had only the viewpoint from a boom market. I hadn't really spoken to mentors or people that had built or had run wholesaling businesses across down markets. It's only now that I'm 
finding that, okay, people have actually been running hosting businesses since 2016, 2015, you know, when the market corrected in 2017. So they have more experience. They've seen the ups and downs. They have more context. You know, if I had spoken with them in 2021, yes, they would give me the upside of getting 50, 60 K deals, but they will also tell me there are days, there are months you wouldn't get a deal for like two months. And, you know, are you ready for that? So if I had known that I would obviously have been more measured in my approach and not think like it's always going to be 50 K deals, always going to be 60 K deals, always going to be 70 K deals. Like sometimes it can be 10 K deals, you know? So no, that's true. We're all entrepreneurs that essentially started our businesses in some of the best time. <laughs> so um, makes us kind of careless uh, in certain instances for sure. That's good, man. But let me ask you this. So the conviction thing, because I go through it, I'm sure Austin goes through it. We kind of pivot our businesses multiple times because we lose conviction in whatever we're doing, whatever that lead funnel is, whatever the business as a whole is, right? And so I guess to go a step further, how do you have conviction in your business until you've really seen success, right? And that could be in your startup because you wouldn't have, like, it would have been like a slow grind, right? Also yeah. for you, that $3,500 campaign, that was probably pretty nerve wracking, right? And going through 2022, a lot of wholesalers and mortgage agents and realtors and everyone involved, right? It would have been pretty nerve wracking. So how do you go about getting that conviction and holding on to it? First things first, it's really understanding like where you want to be in the future. If you have an idea of, of what life would look like in the future, like this is what I'd like to do. This is what I foresee for myself. Once you have that clarity and like, I know it's probably not always easy to have that clarity because there's a lot of shining object syndrome. But once you have that clarity, then you decide, okay, what's the best way to get there? You know, like with real estate, a lot of people take wholesaling as the entry strategy. And then once they get a few deals, they move to another strategy. That makes sense, right? For me, I know that I want to be at the forefront of finding deals because like I read the book, Money People Deal. I think that was sort of foundational for me because there was something that Stefanio said. He said, there's three parts to every deal. If you know how to do one, you are just like every random person. If you know how to raise capital, you're like a mortgage broker. You're probably not more than that. If you know how to find deals, you're just a wholesaler. If you know how to do contracting work, you're probably just a contractor. The moment you know how to do two, you know, then you become valuable. So I started off with finding deals, right? And I've always asked myself, what's the second part of that bucket that I want to know how to do well? And that's raising financing. And a key portion of raising financing is, is attention, being able to share what you're doing, being able to get eyeballs on you. So it's all deliberate for me where I'm not just doing wholesaling because I'm looking to get a few deals. It's to build a brand around it, to consistently be at the forefront of finding deals and being able to also build the attention to get financing my way, basically have control. That's how I view it. So those views don't change irrespective of how the market is. Yeah, the market was down. It was harder to find deals. Or the concept of having building skill sets in finding deals and raising capital, that concept doesn't change for me. Like I believe it firmly and I want to be good at it. And I want to be able to easily find deals and easily raise capital to, um, to close on those deals. That's the best surprised by Deji's answer. They're just waiting around. <laughs> Deji, where, do you, where do you see your business going in five years from now? Um, and I, I think you can, that, that's actually a really interesting question for you. Just as a wholesaler, like what is the future? Like what does scaling up really mean? Or is it in wholesaling or is it in like doing different things? Like, I'm just curious where you see the business growing. Yeah, man. Like, um, you know, when you have, you people like Austin and, and all that massive wholesalers that you look up to, you're like, 
how do you differentiate yourself, man? So I'm cognizant of the fact that there's a lot of experienced wholesalers in the space. You know, they've built capabilities that will probably take years to compete with. But as I mentioned earlier, like for me, like from a business standpoint, I always want to find what is my differentiating factor? Like what can I do maybe better or what can I do in a unique way that sets me apart? And what I found is a lot of the skills that people have built over the years is probably going to take me years to do it. It's probably going to take me longer because the market has changed. You know, when others started, they started in a not so saturated market. So doing it now will probably take longer for me. I have found that with social media and with content and with the approach that I'm taking now, I'm able to differentiate myself in the unique way. So a lot of those skill sets like raising capital would probably be easier with attention. Again, I have started to follow people that, you know, have built businesses, not necessarily because they had the skills to do so, but they had the attention to convert people to those businesses. So that's something that I think I'm going to be focusing on. And I think I mentioned that earlier in the call where, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, when it comes to attention, I want to be the number one. I don't necessarily have to be number one in terms of like wholesale deals or wholesale fees or wholesale volume. But I know that if I have the most attention, because I have the education, the skills, the mindsets in this space, I know that I'm able to take that attention and divert it to the highest and best use for myself. So if I have all the attention and I believe that at this time, the best thing for me to do is to build a startup in the real estate space, then I do that at that time. If the best thing for me is to close a multifamily deal, then I do that at that time. For me, once you have the education, once you have the skills, once you have the knowledge, the mindset, the relationships, and you then add up on top of that, the attention, then you have the choice, right? So I think maintaining that control, having that attention, being able to decide what's the best possible use of your time, what's the best possible use of your resources. You know, I think that's where I, I want to be in the next couple of years. Yeah, I can tell that you put a lot of thought into your business plan with real estate in general and and opening up your options to do sort of different things. And one thing I like that you mentioned, and funny enough, me and Mai just got off of recording a podcast with another guest. People are addicted to fast results, right? But you're invested in the long game because social media, as, as you mentioned, it's not something that you monetize overnight. It's not something that's going to pay the bills or at least not today, or maybe yeah. not even the next few months, right? It's a total game changer when you're talking about two, three, four, five years down the line when you start building that brand credibility. So it looks like you're well on your way to not only differentiating yourself, but um, towards your business plan of not only wholesaling, but buying multifamilies and, and doing other unique things in the space. If people want to follow your journey, connect with you, how could they best do so? And, and they want to get on your buyers list. Let's, let's not forget about yeah. that. <laughs> yes, please. If you want to buy deals, please get on my buyers list. The easiest way would be on Instagram. So it's deals estate CA. I have a link tree there. You know, it takes you to the podcast. Like once you get on Instagram, we put our podcast content there. You know, we put like our buyers list links there. We share as much stuff as we can there. So deals estate CA, that's what it is on Instagram. That's what it is on Facebook. That's what it is on TikTok as well. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All down in the show notes below. And guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, share it with a friend. It helps bring great guests like Deji out here. And it also helps your friends and families who who might want to get into real estate as well. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.